0: The call to worship is from Psalms 126, verses 1 through 3. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, they were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we were filled with joy. This
1: morning's Old Testament. Old Testament reading is uh, found in Exodus 19, verses 16 through 25. Uh, In your pew Bible, that's found on page 70. That's the first half. I will denote the second half when I get there. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. With a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the front of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it and like a smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord. And many of them, and many of them, will perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, "People cannot come up. Mount, people, the people that cannot come up Mount Sinai, because yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set apart it, set it apart as holy." The Lord replied, "Go down and bring up Aaron with you." but the priests and the people must not force their way through and come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Second part, uh, Deuteronomy 33, uh, verse 2. In your pew Bible, it's it's found on page 193. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Saire unto them. He shined from from Mount Paran, and he came up with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Amen.
0: Today's New Testament reading is found in Acts 2, verses one through four. In your pew Bible, it's on page 1004. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, perhaps Eric would be so kind as to remind us when Pentecost was. Two weeks ago Sunday. And it would have been a nice symmetry to have this uh, sermon coincide with that, but it wasn't meant to be. Uh, and so we will talk a little bit about uh, Pentecost, but framed slightly differently uh, in the context of our explorations of story of God and humanity, of which uh, we've been looking. I want to spend just a second on that reminding us, uh, I, I think last week's sermon was probably a bit heavy, I apologize for that. We're going to try to keep it uh, at a level that's elevating that's, uh, and straightforward and something that we can uh, really get our, our minds around. What we're talking about in essence and my burden is this, we're talking about the story of God in relationship to humanity. And in conjunction with the story of God in relationship to humanity, we're asking, is this still an important story, a meaningful story? And if so, is it worth organizing our lives around? And if it's worth organizing our lives around, how do we accomplish that? What does that look like? And the answer of how we do it and what it looks like lies in part in our theology, which is why this has been a little bit challenging. I'm hoping that we can come to some sort of understanding of the story it is that we would like to organize our lives around in theological terms, because if we can get a grasp of that, it helps inform us in terms of what we ought to be about, how we ought to be living, who we ought to be in light of that story. Are you with me so far? Excellent. So the the first thing that we need to remind ourselves of is just where we've been very briefly. We started with the story of God as imaged by God. That is to say, how is it that we have any sort of sense of who God is? The answer comes to us in that we were created with this sense because it says quite clearly God imaged himself in us that we are the image of god male and female okay that humanity itself bears the vestige of that image even after sin entered the world the second way god has imaged himself and we read in hebrews of course i mentioned that jesus is the exact representation of his being even though jesus is not described in his human physical form as a man. He is described, and God the Father is described, in apocalyptic literature when seated on the throne, with fiery eyes and hair like burnished wool and legs that are glowing like bronze and fire coming forth from the throne in those images that I quoted you a couple weeks ago. God has imaged himself in humanity, and then he has imaged himself in the person of Christ, the one sent of the Father then Jesus is imaged as well. Even though, as I said, we don't have a portrait of him, we don't have word as to what it is that he looked like exactly. And by the way, this is wonderful, isn't it? Because when we get to the story of the gospel, we find that the gospel is for everybody, okay? The gospel is to be universal. All indiscriminately are welcome, Jew and Gentile alike. The gospel extends God's grace and salvation to everybody without prejudice. Which means that in our ethnocentricity, Jesus can take so many forms and colors and can be contextualized. Doesn't have to look like a blue-eyed Dane. Nor does he have to be Afrocentric. He needn't be any one thing. He can be all things because we don't have an image. What we have is a reality that he lived in the way his ministry was constructed. Does that, is that helpful at all? So when we think about the organizing story of our lives as, as Christ is imaged, we find that it's not a physical image that we pursue. It's an image in the world of belief. That is to say, The church is the image of Christ in all of its diversity and in all the ways it welcomes all people from all over the world. Jew, Gentile, circumcised, not. This is the biblical language that we inherit. And so we see in the story of God and humanity a progression. We see in the story of God and humanity a progression that is even going to speak to us as we look at spirit today. Because what we find in Genesis in creation, we find God speaking, right? And I'm going to come back to this, so I'm going to hit this very quickly. Hopefully you can keep it in mind, and then we're going to come back to it a little later for it to sink in a little bit more. In the creation account, we find God speaking and things becoming, Yes? So the act of speaking, declaring, saying the word means that something that wasn't will be. The word forms the reality. But we find also when we get to 1 John that Jesus is described in John's gospel as the word who was with God and was God and by whom all things were created. Isn't that clever? This is this wonderful play on words. you see? And Jesus becomes the embodiment of the creative energy of God in John 1. But we also find in Genesis that the spirit is present, hovering on the waters, moving over chaos and moving chaos into order. You see? present. We find God impatient with a world fallen to sin. I say impatient because he destroys it in a flood only to repent of it and send the rainbow as a promise declaring that he would never again destroy the world by a flood. But as Noah and his family are waiting in the ark with the animals that they have taken aboard, they send forth first a raven who comes right back to them and then they decide a week later to send a dove and then a week later they send the dove again the dove is the one who comes back with the olive branch or leaf in its mouth and what is the symbol of peace today the olive branch particularly the dove bearing the olive branch peace God has declared peace with the world in this symbol and the symbol emerges once again in the Christian church much later but once again in the biblical narrative when thank you the baptism of jesus a voice is heard from heaven the father this is my son whom i'm love who i whom i love with him i am well pleased and the spirit descends as the scriptures say as a dove coming down god is once again declared declared his peace his reconciliation, his desire to bring humanity back and to bring it to himself, and there's something that's going to be very uh, powerful, creative, renewing about the word and ministry of Jesus, which is symbolized as the spirit dove comes in baptism. So we have a, a movement and a progression of that particular symbol, but there's. Another one that is very interesting and the texts that were read in the Old Testament have to do with the giving of a law right Exodus 20 and I think was it was it Deuteronomy 33 thank you in Deuteronomy 33 we the words we read were I give to you a fiery law we're talking about the symbol of fire Fire and smoke cover the mountain of God on which the commandments are going to be given. Everybody is to bathe, cleanse themselves, and abstain from relations sexually for three days prior to this event. Nobody, no animal, no human is to go up on the mountain at all. God is not to be approached. In the fire and the smoke, there's earthquake and cloud and all manner of menace and Moses alone descends up. Well, Moses goes up anyway, right? He is up there encountering God on this mountain and brings back the law, the fiery law, which has all of Israel trembling. Now fire is going to come again in our story today in Pentecost, but so much differently. The word of the Lord, as it comes to Israel, the chosen people, as it comes to them, comes first in promise through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But as time develops, it now comes in the form of fiery law. There's an absoluteness to this. There are penalties when the law is broken, a system has come to be that will characterize the way a people will live for a long time. We find Elijah some years later. Israel's been settled. He's a prophet. No one is faithful, he thinks, but himself. He bears the word of the Lord to the king and his heathen queen, Canaanite queen. He is banished. He's fed in the wilderness. A drought comes that he has pronounced. And the Lord tells him it's over. There's going to be rain, but first there must be a showdown. Israel must choose. And so Elijah goes up to the mountain of God and builds an altar and puts upon it the wood and the bull and pours water, precious, precious water, scarce water over the altar so that it cannot be fidgeted with, fixed, rigged. And he prays. Oh, yes, only after the false prophets of Baal have danced and cut themselves and hooted and hollered and incanted and prayed themselves. And nothing has happened. And with the prayer of Elijah, fire comes from heaven and utterly destroys the offering, the wood. The stone, the water, it's completely gone. Fire becomes an important symbol for us. When we think back, and I I, I skipped over this one, I apologize, I'm just going to pop back briefly in our chronology. When we think of the camp of Israel itself, fire led them by night, pillar of cloud by day, and those same things stayed over the tent of the assembly in the Holy of Holies while they were encamped. Cloud by day, fire by night. The Bible describes God as a consuming fire. So, in our story of God and humanity, there's a time, a chapter, when we start with creation, we move to fall, we find God very unhappy with humankind and what has happened in the fall. He destroys humankind and the world in this, repents of that, sends Noah and the animals back to replenish the world and then calls out of the world one in whom he's going to save, by whom he's going to save the world through. That is to say, Abraham and his offspring will be an example to the world. The story of God and humanity will be acted out in this relationship as a positive example for the world. And it's Paul who later reminds us that Israel is saved by promise, not by act or faithfulness or circumcision, or deed. Remember in Romans, Paul's treatise on this. In this story of God and humanity, as we move forward, we find a time coming when the law is given and the penalties for breaking it are indeed severe. And Israel is constantly in flux. Times of goodness and times of terrible Uh, problem, captivity, other things going on. Everything a test, everything a wrestling between who we're going to be about, who we're going to serve, who they were going to serve. You see, they had to answer the question was the story of God and humanity an important one? And if it was important, Was it still meaningful? And if it was still meaningful, was it worth organizing their lives around? Tell me the story. The God who created in love, the God who sent his sign in the heavens, the rainbow, the God who called the forefather to a land that he would inherit it and a people to fill the land promise given a covenant people of promise people of covenant is it a compelling story God is going to bless the world through this one individual through this one people well they had a hard time hanging on to that story they had a hard time making their lives be about that because we know they fell away time and time and time again we get to a new era time in which Christ himself comes. Now it's no longer prophets and servants that God is sending, it is his son. Longing to reconcile himself to the world and be reconciled to the world in Christ. And we know this story better than most. We may not know it as well as we ought, we may not know it completely but we know to some degree the story of Jesus each of us is it a compelling story is it a story that still has meaning is it a story of God and humanity worth organizing our lives around I said that Jesus was imaged in the church and yet it is between The ascension of Christ, His final days on earth and the ascension, and this thing we call Pentecost, it is between this time that the believers are gathered waiting, and the church is not yet born, but will be born. when the day of Pentecost came they were all together in one place the word says suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting I wanna just talk about that very briefly a sound like blowing wind but was there a wind doesn't say there was There was no wind, only the sound of a rushing wind. They were able to identify the sound in that moment, and as they wrote of it later, as the movement of God. And then the next verse is astounding. I'm wondering uh, if we can have the logo of the Seventh-day Adventist Church projected up here in just a moment, or any time you can get it up. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. You see at the top of this projection, our Seventh-day Adventist logo. Now, if the logo is complete and in printed form, you can actually see a world wrapped around the logo. But the logo points to word, scripture, the book that's being opened in the green. The cross is outlined for us at the center of the book, so Christ is at the heart of our belief and our theology. And above the cross is what? Fire, a flame. And is it cloven? Split? It is. It's a forked flame. So you have this flame that symbolizes the spirit. Now this is drawn directly from the King James Version, which emphasizes this sort of forked tongue fire that came to rest on people. And we get this idea, sort of like your bulletin cover, of these tongues of fire coming down out of heaven and just resting on everybody in this room. Okay? Now that's an interesting image and a rather romantic one and I'll come back to that. Hold on to that. Preceding that is this wind, right? The sound of a wind, of rushing wind, but there is no wind. We have a flame that is coming, but it's not consuming. The picture here is so much different, even though it's evocative of, or it reminds us of, the picture of Moses on Sinai, or the picture of Elijah Hiding in the rocks, seeking God, God passes before him and finally reveals to him his presence in the still small voice, not the earthquake or the thunder, not the fire, the trembling. God's story is evolving with humanity. And in this moment we have all the markings of something very important and significant happening. Something very deeply symbolic and spiritual. Something religiously informative. But it's very different than the God of the Old Testament. You see, it says they were all gathered in one accord. And if you read chapter 1, you find out who all is. There are the 11 because Judas has done what? Betrayed Christ and killed himself. A replacement for Judas has been chosen in Acts chapter 1, Matthias. So present in chapter 1, the disciples gathered in the upper room, this place where the Last Supper had been held presumably, large enough to accommodate them, are the 11 plus Matthias, the 12, who would also be symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And with the 12, you have other followers of Jesus including Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and other women who were with the disciples. It is now the movement of God, but it isn't going to be to just one man or two up on a mountain representing the company of Israel. It isn't going to be in fear and trembling and firework, there's going to be a God sound And an appearance and you'll note in your text that it will fall not on just the twelve or men only or women only or the original twelve and not the rest of the followers and disciples of Jesus gathered in that place it falls on all which goes back to what I said earlier about the gospel And how Jesus is not physically imaged for us and therefore can be contextualized so that he's everything to everyone. In this marvelous Acts moment, what we have emphasized historically is the flame, (laughs) the fire. Now this isn't altogether inappropriate. Ovid, Virgil, some of the great philosopher writers of the past understood that if they wrote with fire surrounding the head or being part of the head region of a particular figure, it symbolized divine favor. So from ancient times, the idea of fire around or on the head has indicated divine favor. And I don't think that point is missing here. I think it's present in this passage. But in emphasizing fire, we've missed the key word, which is tongue. Could I have the next slide, please? How many of you remember what this symbolizes? Anybody who was alive in the 70s? Oh, come on. I saw a lot of children up here, but you certainly know what this is. This is the work of John Pasquet. He uh, was in the Royal College of Art in London from 67 to 70. And he designed this in 1971 based on the mouth of who? Mick Jagger. Because when he interfaced with Mick Jagger, he couldn't help but notice that the most dominant feature of Mick Jagger was his enormous, ginormous mouth, lips and tongue. This was featured on an album in 72 and became one of the most famous pieces of art for rock and roll history ever. In fact, in 2008, it won an award for being the most recognizable or best uh, such work ever. You can take that down. (laughs) I wanted to throw in a bit of pop culture, not completely destroy and detract from the, the moment. What I want you to see in that is symbol. When you see that, you know immediately Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, some tunes start coming to mind. You have a point of reference. You might even have the album at home. You might even have it in vinyl if you're old enough and too sentimental to get rid of all of that for CDs and MP3s and that kind of stuff. And it's important to us culturally because rock and roll has been so important to us culturally. How many people have organized their lives around those stories? But the tongue that rests at Pentecost comes down as if it's just sort of a a conglomerate of tongues. And when it says cloven, it doesn't mean it was a forked tongue, or it doesn't mean that it was a forked flame. What it means is the tongue separated among the believers and rested on each of them. So what you have above their head isn't a pretty flame. What you have is a tongue, primarily, that looks like a flame of fire. Now you say, well, that's a small distinction. I don't believe it is. When we think about tracing the Holy Spirit, referred to in the King James as the Holy Ghost, When we think about tracing that which we don't identify with the physical or the corporeal, how do we image spirit? Well, we image spirit in dove. We image spirit in breath, which I haven't talked much about this morning. And we image spirit in tongue. Mm. Now, interestingly enough, Let's go to the breath quickly. In creation, when God makes man, he forms him of dust, and he breathes into him the breath of life. And the Hebrew word for breath of life is ruach, which is spirit. And so when we look at the Holy Spirit, in John it's described as the wind. It blows, and we know not where it comes from or where it's going. John says. Holy Spirit, wind or breath is this vital energy of God. You know, breath is important if you've ever been short of breath. You know, breath is important if you've ever pushed yourself to exertion and you know how that organ functions your lungs expanding, your rib cage expanding, everything moving. You know, if you've ever sung or orated, that breath plus Tongue equals word. Now, there are sounds that we can make with our throat with no tongue. And there are sounds that we can make um, nasally, I suppose, that don't require much of a tongue anyway. But when we speak of tongue, we speak of language. And when we speak of language, we speak of the symbol of consciousness. Because when we have breath and when we have tongue and when we have language, we have consciousness. Imagine, read up on it, Helen Keller's world, sightless, soundless, all she had was touch. Consciousness came when she was able to identify herself as distinct from that which is around her. And she was able to really function and think when she realized that something could be symbolically representative. Our lives are organized around symbols. And when the Holy Spirit comes in Pentecost in the form of tongue, the writer of Acts, Luke, is making a wonderful wordplay because immediately what happens is out of spirit and tongue comes word, proclamation. They begin to preach each in a language they have never learned. What a strange gift. The Jews gathered from all over the world, and they were already dispersed to all parts of the world, and the text lists them, all the way from Egypt and Parthenia and you name it. They're all there. All of them are astounded because they see these crude Galileans, or so they were labeled. These crude Galileans, and what are they doing? They're speaking eloquently in tongue that they recognize, language that they speak. And testimony is born to the person of Jesus Christ. Read on in Peter's testimony, Acts chapter 3, 2 and 3. It's amazing the way that this just forms. And the scripture says, and thousands were added to the church each day. When God spoke in the beginning, a world came to order. And the Spirit was present, and the Word, who was Jesus, was present. And when Jesus left and said, I'm going to send you an advocate, a comforter, someone who will be with you to the end of days, when he sends this person, and it comes in power upon the disciples, and all gathered into the upper room indiscriminately, And they begin to prophesy and speak, and speak in languages that they have not learned to address an audience who speaks a language they didn't know they needed to hear the gospel in. Out of that speech is born another universe. The world of Christendom is born. The world of the church comes to be. The birth of the church comes in the wake of the Pentecost gift of the Holy Spirit imaged in tongue. Tongue translates to tongues and proclamation and gospel. Is this a meaningful story? Is this an important story? Is this a story that has any meaning in our world today? Is this a story worth organizing our lives around? There's so much more. But the questions I leave you with, I hope, will give you a glimpse of where we're headed and how this might fully have meaning. You see, breath and tongue going back to creation itself presenting to its receivers the possibility of meaning and symbol and consciousness the birth of the church coinciding with the coming of the Spirit in tongue the way in which the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit comes to the church in its formation through many gifts, prophecy being but one of them, speaking in tongues being but one of them, preaching being but one of them, teaching yet another. The spirit of prophecy is in our story all the way to the end of time, the Holy Spirit is. Because even in Revelation 19, we all know the famous words that are uttered to John as he falls in ecstasy and worships one he's not to worship. The one who bears the news to John says, Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I'm not going to pretend, even having read John 14 many, many, many times, that I understand how all of this mystery of God and Son and Spirit work. I'm not going to pretend, even having read John 14 many, many times, that I understand the ways in which God has given the Son everything, that the Son might in turn turn everything over to God, that God might be all in all. It's mystery. But what I know is that in the beginning, God created by word. And through His prophets, came the law. And through his prophets came the promise of one greater than the law. There are 44 prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament given by Old Testament word and prophet. And in the one sent, who came from the Father, full of spirit, full of grace, full of truth, when Jesus Christ speaks, a new world is born. And when he promises to to give the spirit that is with him to his disciples, he breathes on them as God in the beginning breathed life into Adam, and he breathes into them the spiritual life that he is possessed of. And as he ascends, he promised them a comforter who will be with them, an advocate, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he comes in tongues and enables the gospel to go forward in a way that gives birth to church, which is the product of proclamation and the image of the living Christ. I know it's deep. I hope this week was a little more accessible. I know that it's a challenge for me to keep these things straight and it would be a challenge for anybody Systematic theologians, theologians, philosophers have wrestled with these questions for millennia. But the questions continue to need to be answered and only you can answer them. Is this a story worth organizing my life around? May God bless you as you wrestle with that. And I would invite our deacons now to receive your your gifts in response to the gifts that God has brought us. And so it is, Lord. You are the answer to our yearnings. Please. Now make your dwelling your place, your home with us, and in us. And bless your people in such a way that we might live this story out, the story of God and humanity.
1: Amen.